0: Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for anyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to, I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 89 of History of the Marine Corps, The Battle of Soissons, Part 1. Less than a month after the Marines fought during the Battle of Belleau Wood, the 5th and 6th Marine regiments made their way north to Soissons. This battle was part of the larger aisne Marne counteroffensive launched by the Allied forces. The main target was the railway and the road from Soissons to Chateau Thierry. The Germans used these two transportation routes for their main supply lines, and the destruction of these two targets would significantly damage German logistics. The Marines, who participated in both the Battle of Belleau Wood and the Battle of Soissons, swore that Soissons was much worse. This was a brutal battle, and this episode focuses mostly on the 5th Marine Regiment. The first day was tough, and while the 6th were in reserves, The 5th advanced towards the Germans. The Battle of Soissons was enormous, and there were a quarter of a million Allied troops with 230 tanks and over 200 planes. This force went up against the 350,000 Germans, 350 tanks, and multiple aircrafts. Casualty rates were high for everyone, and the U.S. made up around 10% of the Allied casualty rate. Thanks for listening. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The performance of Marines during the Battle of Bella Wood showed the world what the United States Marine Corps was capable of. It impressed our allies, and instilled confidence in U.S. Army officers, and they started looking at Marine leadership for more advice. Shortly after the success at Belleau Wood, General Pershing gave Major General John A. Lejeune command of the U.S. 2nd Infantry Division, making him the first Marine to command a U.S. Army division in the war. Belleau Wood was a significant loss for the Germans, but they were still in the fight and they were planning an attack on the Western Front. The priority for Allied forces was to deny Germany the opportunity to reorganize, and they prepared for a counteroffensive. This counteroffensive was a series of battles during the summer of 1918. 23 German divisions advanced towards Reims, France, with the goal of attracting Allied forces out of Belgium and towards their location. General Charles the Butcher Mangan, commander of the French 10th Army, was given the 2nd Division to use at his disposal. The Germans launched their 5th and final spring offensive, known as Operation Marne schutz Rimes. Germans launched assaults to the east and rest of Rheims, a French city 80 miles northeast of Paris. In response, Foch moved troops to the north of Paris and attack the German army's flank. The French noticed that previous German attacks followed a pattern, and Allied forces anticipated their assault to take on the same shape. They predicted the Germans' movement and how they will attack, but they were missing some key elements, like the location of the attack and the date. Germany was lacking the resources needed to defend against Allied forces properly. But they expected to succeed at Marne, and thought Allied forces would respond by shifting troops to their location. Fresh off the Battle of Belleau Wood, the U.S. 2nd Division stayed in the reserves until mid-July, where it was transferred to the Villers Forest and prepared for their orders in the upcoming offensive attack. They were waiting for a while. To make sure they retained the element of surprise, the French kept their plans secret. Transferring Allied troops to the forest was highly classified, and many of the U.S. general officers didn't know where they were heading or even what they would be doing once they arrived. General Harbord wrote in his journal, It was 3 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon before we knew where the buses were to be, in which our infantry and machine gunners were to embuss at 4. About that time, we heard that the new division headquarters would be at the Carrefour de Nemours and that an attack was contemplated by the French 10th Army, to which we were now to be assigned. With the field artillery and trains gone, and the infantry going, I saw little reason for lingering. So when the infantry got away, I had the truck with our headquarters stuff loaded and started north, in the general direction of Villers and Soissons. In truck movements of troops, the French never tell anyone where they are going, You are always told to proceed to some distant point where an officer will meet you with orders. And though every voluble Frenchman in lovely France may know where you're going, it is a secret from the person most interested, the American commander. A division of 28,000 men, the size of a European army corps, had been completely removed from the control of its responsible commander, and deflected by marching and by truck Through France to destinations unknown to any of the authorities responsible either for its supply, its safety, or its efficiency in the coming attack. Of course, the reason behind all the secrecy was to avoid the possibility of this information being leaked to the Germans. Once the troops reached the forest, they hid amongst the trees to prevent aerial surveillance. Here, they waited for their next command. Harbord recounts, quote, The artillery brigade was now in position near the Carford de Namours. General Bally knew the location of his own adjacent artillery, but had been unable to effect any personal reconnaissance to his front. As to the remainder of the division, the whereabouts of not a single man was known to me. Harbord goes on to say, Different units began to arrive in the open edges of the forest by the middle of the forenoon and only rain clouds screened them from the sight of Bosch airplanes and balloons. All day they were arriving tired and worn out. A regiment was held up for two hours by a French major, who demanded receipts for the transportations by truck before they had arrived at a destination, and which, if given, would have resulted in the troops being dumped out as soon as the receipt was signed. Oh, these frugal French! Unquote. The United States had no clue what was going on when it came to preparing for this battle. On one account, the machine guns of the Marine Brigade were dropped off 12 miles from where they were needed. They had no orders and weren't provided transportation. When the 2nd Division finally located them, they had to carry their guns by hand, through fields and muddy roads to reach their position. They managed to arrive at the last possible moment. It wasn't until right before the attack that the U.S. was brought into the plan. U.S. troops barely had enough time to get into position and prepare for the upcoming assault. The 2nd Division was put on the front lines as the right division of the French Corps. Combined with the U.S. 1st Division on the left and the 1st Moroccan Division taking center, the Allied force was to assault deep. Into the most critical point on the western flank of the Marne Salient. The original attack order was for the 9th and the 23rd regiments of the 3rd Brigade to attack, and the 5th and 6th Marine regiments would be held in reserve. But this plan would change. The day before the 2nd Division moved into position, military police were called to regulate traffic on the Soissons-Paris Highway, and to make sure that all the ammunition and weapons would arrive on time. Most of the logistical success the following day was credited to the MPs for helping with the transportation. On the 17th, officers spent most of their day trying to find lost platoons and ammunition. Harbert stated that the lost machine guns, quote, gave me very great anxiety, unquote. And when they finally arrived, each man only carried one belt of ammunition. The battlefield was similar to Bella Wood mostly wide-open terrain, covered with wheat fields, and had the occasional wooded ravines. The 3rd Brigade covered most of the division sector, and the 5th Marines covered the rest. Moroccans, who Marines from 1-5 described, quote, whose cold-blooded manner of fighting had from early days of the war struck terror in the hearts of the Germans, unquote, were to their left flank, and the 6th Marines were now held in reserve. But even with the battle starting in the morning, everything was still in chaos. Night came on. Seven hours of darkness before the zero hour. None of my units except the gunners were in place. It rained hard. The forest was plutonian in its darkness. The road beyond words to describe. Trucks, artillery, infantry columns, cavalry, wagons, caissons, Mud, utter confusion. During the afternoon and evening, and up to the hour of the attack, every man of ours toiled without seizing with the single object of delivering the attack of the 2nd Division at the appointed hour of 4.35 on the 18th. All realized that the task was almost superhuman, but that the honor not only of that division, but of the American name was at stake. At 3 a.m., The 5th Marines and the 9th Infantry were forcing their way through the forest, and most careful computation indicated that they would probably arrive in time to attack. At 4 a.m., it was almost a certainty that they would keep up with perhaps 5 minutes to spare. In fact, the regiments got to the point designated for the assault at the double time and ran behind the artillery barrage. There had been no time for reconnaissance by proper officers." At 4 a.m., only the Army's 9th Infantry was in position. The 23rd Infantry showed up precisely at 4.30, and the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 5th Marines came up on the run just as the attack started. No one had slept that night. In addition to the indescribable nerves troops must have felt before this battle, they spent most of their night moving into position through traffic-packed roads and thick forest. Harbord described the march, quote, The roads were like tunnels in their gloom. The rate of movement through the dark forest could not have exceeded a mile per hour, unquote. Every Marine held on to each other in the darkness to avoid getting separated. As they made their way through the woods, Major Robert Denig, temporary commander of 2-6, wrote home in a letter to his wife, Troops of all kinds passed us in the night. A shadowy stream, over a half a million men. Some French officers told us they had never seen such a concentration since Verdun. The last infantry regiment to arrive were the 5th Marines. The 5th, commanded by Major General Logan Phelan, received orders for the attack late afternoon on the 17th. He didn't find his battalion until 10 p.m. that night and his machine guns were nowhere near their location. Merwin Silverthorne, a Marine sergeant during Bella Wood, and recently promoted to second lieutenant, led the 4th Platoon of the 45th Company of 3-5. He stated, quote, Getting into action, we would always leave back 10%. That's an old trench warfare concept. That is, if the whole organization got wiped out, then the 10% that was left back would become the nucleus for the new organization. Well, the 10% would consist of all those who were absent, sick in the hospital, or away at school, and one officer. There normally was an officer in the hospital, or away at school, so actually leaving behind 10% was more of a paper transaction." Unquote. Harbord assigned machine gun companies from the division and also from the 6th Marines under Phelan's command to compensate for the lack of guns. Phelan was one of the lucky ones, and some of the battalions would head into battle without machine gun support. When a Marine officer was told that he wouldn't have machine guns assisting his unit, he replied, We will take the Bosch machine guns. When Phelan finally was in position, the Marines were in rough shape. A log entry by the battalion surgeon states, quote, By mid-afternoon, the canteens filled the night before had been drained and acute thirst was bothering the men. Some men who had found and eaten a few canned sardines were in the utmost distress. There was no hope that either water or food would be available. Some men chewed on grass and some moistened their lips with mud. At about 2200, a brisk thunder and lightning storm soaked the men and the road. The rain relieved the thirst of many, but made leg movement more difficult. The men who could not keep going attempted to work their way toward the side of the road through darkness and an indescribable mixed mass of milling humanity. If a call for aid were answered, a medical worker would lose his organization when he stepped out of the file he could find himself in the nearby files of French and Algerians, unquote. As the Marines marched into battle, they carried with them low-quality rations for food. Silverthorne stated, quote, In World War I, our food and supply were pretty much all the way back to Civil War days. A man carried two days' reserve rations in his pack. Those reserve rations consisted of a package of hardtack, for one thing. Now, hardtack is like a soda cracker, about three inches square, a quarter of an inch thick. White, just like an ordinary saltine soda cracker, only it's much tougher. It doesn't break up easily. That was his carbohydrate base. Then he carried some raw sugar. Whatever he did with that, nobody knew. He had some salt and pepper, and then he had some bacon in another tin, known as the bacon tin, which was a slab of bacon. How he was going to prepare it was up to him. The rear units of the assaulting battalions rushed into position, but they couldn't make it before the artillery barrage commenced. The 5th Marines had a large front and placed the 1st Battalion, commanded by Turrell, on the left. Their mission was to protect the flank as well as keep communication with the Moroccans. The 2nd Battalion, commanded by Kaiser, was positioned as the right assaulting battalion, and the third, commanded by Shearer, held the old front line as the support. Combined with the Moroccan division, U.S. troops were ordered to push east towards the highway, running from Soissons to Chateau Thierry, and cutting off the German salient. Allied tanks flooded the battlefield, and forces were everywhere. Sergeant Carl Spencer of 36. 82nd Company, wrote in a letter to his mother, quote, There were Americans in their khakis, Moroccans and Italians wearing a dirty brown-colored uniform, the Scots in their kilties, Irish troops wearing o' shanters, and the French wearing all the different shades of blue imaginable. Here was a display of colors that outclassed the rainbow, unquote. The attack started with an artillery barrage from Allied forces to keep up with the surprise attack. Artillery was only used for a few minutes. Turrell's Marines showed up right as the bombardment began, and the Germans answered back with artillery of their own. The German 14th Reserve Division faced off against the 2nd Division, and the left front was manned by the 42nd Division of the 13th Corps. The German front line in the eastern side of the force was staffed by a battalion of the 138th Infantry, and a battalion of the 17th Infantry. They were not dug in well, but they were only the first line of defense. The main resistance line was a few hundred yards back on the Chandon position that ran along the ridge east of the city and through Vierzy. About one mile behind the first outpost was the German artillery. Despite the enormous Allied force, the French attempt to keep their movement as a secret paid off, and the Germans were taken by surprise. General von Wotter previously voiced his concern to the German High Command, and stated that his front lines were greatly depleted, and they were in no condition to hold off a determined attack. He was told that additional troops were not available. The depleted German lines were bombarded with artillery, and multiple tanks advanced through the battlefield. The initial advance of the Marine battalions traveled through the woods and resulted in close combat. German snipers were hidden in trees, and they fired down at the Marines, but this did little to stop the advancing battalion, and most of their casualties actually came from artillery shells exploding in the trees. Marines described taking out the German snipers was, quote, like shooting squirrels, unquote. They eliminated the threat of snipers and continued to push forward. The 3rd Brigade to the Marines' right advanced quickly through the open terrain and overran the German frontline positions with little resistance. After the Marines cleared the forest, supporting tanks took point, and soon Allied forces seized Translon and Vertefoy Farms. But the left flank of the 3rd Brigade had opened, and many casualties occurred in the process. John Thomason, the XO for one five, 49th Company, described that morning, The woods fell away behind and for miles to the left and right across the rolling country. The tanks, large and small, lumbered in advance. Over them, the battle planes flew low, searching the ground. The infantry followed close. American marines and regulars, Senegalese, and the Foreign Legion of France, their rifles slanting forward and behind the infantry, straining horses with lean-muzzled 75s, battery on battery, over the top at last with the rifles. On the skirts of the attack hovered squadrons of cavalry, dragoons and lances, marked from afar by the sparkle and glitter of lanceheads and sabers." Unquote. As soon as the attack started, German forces moved their infantry and artillery reserves forward, but most of these forces were met by Allied troops before they could get into position. Their artillery was overrun, and most of their guns and ammunition was captured. Von Watter moved more of his reserves to the Paris position, a front running southeast of Chandon for about a mile. He then attempted to build a line running through Vierzy. His quick thinking stopped U.S. troops in the afternoon, and German artillery shifted to provide additional support. By the end of the first day, the 5th Battalion was positioned along the ridge between Chandon and Vierzy. The 6th Marines were still in reserve. As the Marines moved through the battlefield at the end of the day, they began to plan their next attack. Private James Hatcher of the 84th Company recounts, Here I saw the full effects of the day's fighting. Men were scattered over the rolling fields where they had fallen while the wheat was furled with little lanes where the tanks had crossed, assisting the infantry in the charge. Many wrecked tanks and airplanes were in evidence, and most of the planes were French. Unquote. The battlefield for Suissan wasn't as confined as Bella Wood; It was a large open terrain, and both sides took heavy casualties that day. A lot from air attacks. That night, Germany decided not to attack and to use the precious hours to prepare for the next day. The 5th Marines alone had more than 450 casualties, and the 6th Marines prepared to help the following day. The progress by the French 10th Army far exceeded what they were anticipating. French General Mangan planned another attack to commence at 4 a.m., and the 2nd Division was ordered to take the Soissons-Chateau-Thierry Road. It was time for the 6th Marine Regiment to shine, and they took the entire division front of almost a mile and a half. The 6th Machine Gun Battalion would reinforce this regiment. It wasn't until 6.30 in the morning when the 6th Marines left their camp and advanced on the Germans. The first day of battle was intense, and the 5th Marines took a lot of casualties that day. But the element of surprise was gone, and the casualty rate for the 6th would be significantly higher thanks for listening next week we'll get into the second day of the battle of Soissons and discuss the overwhelming challenges the six marines faced against the germans welcome to this week's book recommendation this week's audiobook is no parachute a classic account of war in the air in world war one written by arthur gould lee We're touching on the use of aircraft during World War I, and I plan to dedicate an entire episode to the history of marine aviation after we finish up. But if you're impatient, this book provides fantastic first-hand accounts of pilots during the Great War. I'm fascinated with how technology advances during war, and World War I is where the use of aviation in combat started to show its power. This book is based on letters written by the author himself, and he covers his journey from a new pilot to a seasoned fighter. Lee served in the British Royal Corps, so the story doesn't mention the United States much, but it's an excellent book. Most of his letters were written within hours of the event unfolding, so his memories were fresh, and Lee does a great job capturing the true emotions of the war zone. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecore.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.